Great, thank you very much, uh, Ian and Tim, wherever Tim's gone. Oh, there he is, thank you very much. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I thought you'd taken it off already. <laughs> so we'll hear a bit more about, uh, we'll, we'll reference that sketch a bit later. But who knew? Health and safety in the first century. Well, I thought that was a modern thing. I was reading the uh, book of Acts recently, and I had one of those aha moments. So in Acts 22 and Acts 23, there are some sudden changes in the narrative, sudden mood changes, actually. Four changes in brief succession, pretty much in response to four words. And you can just feel the change in the atmosphere. So a bit of context. Paul's third and final missionary journey, he'd set out from Antioch there on the, the far right of the screen. Round about AD 52, he'd passed through Asia, gone to those places, a bit of trouble in Ephesus, which is relevant to, to the story, modern-day Turkey, of course. Um, generated quite a storm of opposition there, went up into uh, modern-day Greece as far as Corinth, and then headed back to Jerusalem. So Paul has been in Jerusalem for a few days in the company of Trophimus and some others. Uh, Trophimus was a convert from Ephesus. And some of the Jews that he had antagonized were there in Jerusalem as well. <clears throat> and they see Paul and Trophimus together, and they see Paul in the temple, and they put two and two together and make five. If you want to follow, it's Acts 21, verse 27, page 1118. We read that some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he's brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Well, that really lights the touch paper. A riot ensues. Paul is dragged away to be killed. But news of the riot reaches the ears of the commander of the Roman troops who are stationed next door to the temple. And with Roman speed and efficiency, they make haste to the scene of the riot. Paul is identified as the source of the trouble and is being taken up the steps of the barracks when he asks to say a few words to the crowd. Given permission, he speaks to the crowd in Aramaic. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. And when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew. So Paul speaks as a Jew to Jews. And as soon as they hear him speaking his native language, they listen because he is one of them. And so now, with an attentive crowd in front of him, he tells his conversion story. How, on the way to Damascus, about 140 miles, for those of you who are interested, we don't know whether it was by horse or on foot, but on the way to Damascus, how he was, he was going there to arrest Christians, to take them back to Jerusalem, and this bright light from heaven flashed around him, and he heard this voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And how he was led by the hand into Damascus. And how another Jew, Ananias, prayed for Paul to receive his sight. 
This is the story that he tells. And then he goes on a bit further and tells the crowd how the Lord has now commissioned him to take the good news to the Gentiles. And boom, the touch paper is lit again. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. So there the commander orders him to be flogged and interrogated to get to the bottom of what's going on. So they stretch Paul out. The centurion raises his whip, but just before the whip comes crashing down, Paul asks a question. Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked, this man is a Roman citizen. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately, and the commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. So it's this incredible roller coaster of emotions. The calm turns to a riot, the riot is pacified in a tense atmosphere. It kicks off again, the Roman military calm things down again, and we're all gathered, ready for a flogging when Paul's question generates the final moment of tension. And the factor that changes the mood on each occasion, bar one, is reference to a tribe. All is calm. Greeks in the temple! Everything kicks off. Brothers, I'm a Jew like you. A restless peace descends. I'm called to the Gentiles. Everything kicks off. Roman law restores a restless peace and prepares to give the troublemaker a good thrashing. But I'm a Roman citizen. Ah, commander, we have a problem. Here's the dictionary definition of a tribe, a social division in a traditional society consisting of families or communities linked by social, economic, religious or blood ties with a common culture and dialect typically having a recognised leader. So if we accept that definition, then we have four tribes involved here. Three relate to nationality, Greeks, Jews and Romans. And the fourth tribe, the Gentiles, was a tribe in the eyes of the Jews. The Gentiles were defined by the Jews by what they were not. They were not Jews. Or if we take another broader definition of tribe, a distinctive or close-knit group, then actually we are all part of one or more tribes. In fact, most of us are part of multiple tribes. I wonder how many tribes you can recognize on this slide here. Maybe just turn to the person next to you and see how many of those 10 you can recognize. Get ready with that. Okay, who thinks they've got all 10? Is that your hand up, Calvin? <laughs> 10, nine, anyone got nine? 
Anyone think they've got eight? No, seven? At six? Has anyone got any of them? <laughs> five? Oh, there's a five over there, Pat, next to Paul. She's got five. Oh, either that or you're waving to me, Pat, one or the other. I couldn't tell. What have we got here? I know the apple, um, the fish, Christian. We're thinking the tie, maybe a, what school you went to. Wondering if that top left-hand one might be vegan. That's three, um, is it? Gender, you know, the one with all the arrows. How many is that? Political party, maybe? I think that's it. Okay, okay. Okay, here's, here's thank you, thank you, Pat. Here's the, here's the reveal. So... So tribes, tribes can form around all sorts of things. Tribes can form around all sorts of things. They can form around uh, beliefs, strong beliefs, convictions, ideologies, like veganism, top left, uh, Brexit, or transgender issues. Tribes can form around shared enthusiasms. Portsmouth Football Club. Wasn't it good of me to put Portsmouth up there? That's so generous of me. Uh, Portsmouth Football Club, um, or uh, let's, what have we got here? Decluttering, that's, the, that's a, the, uh, the Mary Kondo symbol. Hell's Angels, so shared interests. Tribes can form around Christianity, as an example. Tribes can form around consumer choices. The hot tub. <laughs> Are you not part of the hot tub tribe? <laughs> Sadly not. <laughs> Apple Inc. I mean, some people are so, so kind of passionate about their belonging to Apple. Shared heritage, that's Eton School. So tribes can form around all sorts of things. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong with tribes. So tribes just are. To be in a tribe means protection, identity, achieving things you can't achieve on your own, a shared culture, a shared values, a shared language, and more. But most importantly, to be in a tribe is to have a sense of belonging. These are my people. These are my people, to have a sense of belonging. That's what it means, essentially, to be part of a tribe. But the problem comes when we move from tribe membership to tribalism. When our loyalty to our tribe determines our attitudes and our behavior when reason gives way to prejudice and assumptions, when us becomes us and them, when our beliefs become more firmly ingrained every day through what we read in our newspaper or the social media feed that we've chosen, when we no longer see what is true, but only what confirms what we already believe when our unmoderated passion for the tribe erupts in verbal or physical violence. When we move from tribe membership to tribalism, a man gets stabbed while giving a public lecture. When we move from tribe membership to tribalism, someone shouts, he's brought Greeks into the temple, and everything kicks off. 
or when we move from the tribe membership to tribalism, uh, just the one mention of a word, Gentiles, and people are raising their voices and shouting, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. And the church, that's us, is not immune from tribalism. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas, still another I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So apparently in Corinth, it wasn't enough to say that you valued Paul's pioneering mission work, or you were blessed by Peter's pastoral care, or you were inspired by Apollos' teaching. No, apparently you needed to go further and choose a side. But in choosing a side, we become hardened to what the other sides have to offer and blind to any truth that our side doesn't support, no matter how smart we are. And this was Paul's experience, this highly educated Jew retold in the scene between Brutus and Quintus. Paul was so sold out on his version of Jewishness that he could see no alternative. He was persecuting Christians, getting authorization from the high priest to take them back to Jerusalem from Damascus for imprisonment and punishment. And it was only through God's divine intervention on the Damascus road that Paul became aware that he was blind to the truth. His physical blindness was symbolic of his spiritual blindness. And when we are blind to something, we become certain of our own truth. Our views become entrenched. And if we have a faith, then we can feel certain that God is on our side. I don't know if any of you recognize this picture or saw this video of Paula White, Donald Trump's faith advisor, praying and claiming election success. Over and over she prayed, I hear the sound of victory, I hear the sound of victory, I hear the sound of victory, I hear the sound of victory. She was so certain of her truth. And sadly, the church has a reputation for this victorious tribalism. So to give you some examples, think of the Salem witch trials of the 17th century. Or rule number 13 of the Jesuits. If the church have defined anything to be black, which to our eyes appears to be white, we ought in like manner to pronounce it to be black. Or in plain English, The church is always right, therefore, if we have a different view, we must be wrong. Or think of the persecution of Catholics by Protestants, or of Protestants by Catholics. Or think of the Crusades of the Middle Ages to recover Jerusalem from Islamic rule. And in this regard, my own mind goes to a particular film I saw some years ago called The Kingdom of Heaven, and the conviction that some people have that God is on their side. An army of 
Jesus Christ, which bears his holy cross, cannot be beaten. Does the Count of Tiberius suggest that it could be? There must be war. God wills it! This caravan is armed, Renal. Good. No sport otherwise. They've seen us. Go after them. The rider is getting away. It's a broad desert. Nothing will come of it. I prefer not to be hanged before my wife is queen. Don't worry. Who but Reynald, they'll say. It's always me. They'll believe it in Jerusalem, I assure you. You're at Nazareth praying. You're a dangerous man, Reynald. If the war's to be an hour later, I would have it now. How long can the leper last? God wills it. God wills it! Quite difficult to follow some of that audio, but did you catch that repeated phrase, God wills it, God wills it, God wills it. This conviction that God is on our side and therefore we will be victorious. God is on our side, therefore whatever we do, he is going to bless. This unchecked tribalism leads to discord and ultimately that's, this, this is the extreme outcome in terms of violence. And none of us are immune, that's the point I really want to make this morning, none of us are immune from the mentality of them and us. So we need to ask ourselves, how do we guard ourselves from that mentality? How do we avoid becoming the people that see the plank in someone else's eye, but miss the speck in our own eye? How do we avoid moving from tribe membership, which is good and normal, to tribalism, which is extremely dangerous? Well, I think it begins with humility. In the Old Testament, Job and his friends thought they had cornered the truth on suffering. His friends were firmly of the view that suffering was a punishment from God and Job was of the view that he hadn't done anything wrong and that he was being treated unfairly. But God says, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? And after four chapters of questions that Job cannot answer, he eventually humbles himself before God and says, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. So if we accept the fact that we know so little and we understand so little, then we would be slow to draw boundaries, hesitant to accept just black and white cautious to believe that we are right and they are wrong. Alongside humility must be love. In fact, I believe love is evidence of humility. Paul wrote that if I have the gift of prophecy 
I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. I know it all. And if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And I believe Ananias, who prayed for Paul to receive his sight again, exhibited love. He was worried about being sent to pray for Paul, the persecutor of Christians, but he went. And love, of course, was a hallmark of Paul's own ministry after his conversion. Did anyone ever face so much in the way of vitriolic verbal attacks or physical attacks, but continue to patiently serve the Lord in a spirit of love? Humility, love, and then thirdly, we can add self-awareness. Now, sometimes that awareness comes through divine intervention, God knocks us off our metaphorical horses and our assumptions and our treasured beliefs are shaken up. Actually, for most of us, that's a conversion experience that we're describing there. In the sketch, I don't know if you picked up cracks starting to appear in Quintus Minimus' worldview. He's thinking there's the light, there's the voice, there's the blindness, there's the restoration of sight. These things are now just kind of churning away in his mind, making him think. And I wonder if it wasn't just Paul who had a revelation on that day. We don't know how many companions he had or who they were. But I can't help but wondering if cracks started to appear in their worldview too, as a result of what they saw and heard. But in the absence of divine intervention, we can still be on the lookout for signs of our own prejudice. Often it reveals itself in the language that we use, derogatory language. In the sketch again, Brutus assumes that Paul has become another follower of Jesus and betrays his prejudice with the words, another village missing its idiots. And we betray our prejudice with the use of our language, with name-calling and labelling. Our tribalism becomes apparent. There were two articles that appeared in the press recently. French minister, who historically opposed marriage and adoption to same-sex couples, is labelled homophobic, a word that immediately polarises. The Attorney General declares war on woke witch trials, another polarising phrase. If we find ourselves name-calling, or if we find ourselves labelling, or if we find ourselves appealing to violence, they should bring back capital punishment for that lot. Or if we find ourselves putting forward false analogies to bolster up our prejudice, like the vaccine protester comparing their treatment to the treatment of Jewish people in the Holocaust. Or if we find ourselves exaggerating or using them and us language, then our language is betraying our prejudice, our tribalism. And then in addition to humility and self-awareness and love, we can consciously engage with other ideas. The book of Acts tells not just the story of Paul's conversion, but also his passionate engagement with others in debate. And again and again, we we read of him debating and engaging in reasoned argument with others. So notice a few things from those verses which are up on the screen there. To abandon tribalism is not to abandon our convictions and it's not to abandon our passion. 
nor is it to shut ourselves away from other ideas and throw stones from a distance. So Paul wouldn't have been someone to hide behind an anonymous Twitter handle throwing out cowardly comments. Abandoning tribalism requires us to honestly debate with other ideas, to hear other views, and to subject those ideas and our own to rational debate. Now, an actual debate might not be the kind of thing that we would engage in, but we can engage in listening to different ideas by opening ourselves up to the voices of people that we disagree with, or those who speak from a different culture, or those who speak from a different time with a different perspective. So as one example, C.S. Lewis, uh, Christianity's greatest apologist, once wrote about our natural tendency to judge historical figures for their views and actions. Posterity will ask, but how could they have thought that? None of us can fully escape this blind list, but we shall certainly increase it and weaken our guard against it if we read only modern books. And he goes on to say why just having that as our sole point of reference is damaging. Another author, Malcolm Gladwell, says that to overcome our prejudices, we have to have more than just a commitment, for example, to equality. We have to spend time with people who are different to us and engage with their ideas. So let me just finish with a story that this, this reminded me of, um, of the businessman who got lost on some Cornish back roads. So he saw a farmer walking into his barn, and he stopped for help. And the farmer was just beginning to milk his cows, but was happy to tell the man how to get back on track to his destination. So the businessman thanked the farmer, then asked if he knew the time. And the farmer leaned into the udder of his cow and said, Ez, it's 12.30. And the businessman was intrigued. How did you know what the time was? Well, the farmer invited him to sit on his stool. So he did as he was instructed. Anzum, he said, now grab hold of that udder. So with some hesitation, he did indeed grab hold of the udder. Is that's my boy, now lean into the cow and lift up on the udder. So he did that. Is lean in, that's a proper job. Now look over there on that there wall. See, that's a clock. <laughs> when the little hand is on the 12. <laughs> the, the point is, when we spend time with those that we perceive are different to us, actually we find out we've got quite a lot in common and we learn to appreciate them more. Humility, love, self-awareness, intentional exposure to other ideas and to people who are different to us. I believe that with God's help, we can celebrate all that is good about our various tribes without moving from tribe membership to tribalism. With God's help, we can be the kind of people that bring others together rather than drive them apart. Amen.